This is TechSnap, episode 428, recorded on April 26th, 2020. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined by Jim. What's up, everybody? Let's start things off today with some interesting news from our friends over at AMD. Now, usually when we talk about their new CPUs, we include a little caveat about per-core performance and how often that prize goes to Intel. But now AMD is claiming the per-core crown with their new Epic Rome 7F X2 CPU. What's going on here, and why do we care? It seems like the answer is pretty simple on here they've you know re-released Threadripper as an epic is kind of what it boils down to uh, you've got the same really high frequency you've got the i don't want to say the same you've got a similar considerably higher uh, thermal design power and you know heat generation and you get faster per core performance some of that boosted performance comes as a byproduct of an increased base frequency of 500 megahertz paired with a healthy dollop of more l3 cache but is that really worth the higher TDP? Well, Wes, I, I think the short version is if you need to scale up and you can't scale out, then of course it's worth it. You get more performance in one chip per thread. You want that, right? Right. The question is, you know, if it's a case of are you looking for the most economical way to scale, is this chip the answer? And I think a lot of the times that that's going to be a no. The most useful of AMD's performance slides on this showed a 17% improvement in transactions per minute on Microsoft SQL Server. Now, not every workload is going to be the same, but if we're looking at SQL Server as our example, our transactions per minute went up 17%, but the thermal design power went up 33%. Wow. So that's not going to be a win on the long term. If the ongoing cost to run these things in a data center is your metric, then they're just not going to be a win, I don't think. At least not for that workload. Right. As ever, there's a lot of factors involved here, and you might be in a tight spot where you've got more load suddenly, and you just need a machine that can handle it. But longer term, you're always paying that cost. So Wes, I I think the most confusing thing about this new Epic, I guess, F-Series, for lack of a better way to to refer to them, is how is it faster than Threadripper? Is it faster than Threadripper? Because the thermal design power, while it went up a lot you know, in comparison to the similar Epic models with the same core and thread count, it's not up anywhere near as high as the thermal design power is on actual thread rippers with that thread count. And I think the answer might be that it's the highest per thread performance. Maybe it's not the highest single thread. So, you know, thread ripper focuses really heavily on that, you know, magical single thread that all the elite gamers like to look at. But, um, For a server, you don't usually actually care about true single thread. You really care about that per thread performance with a lot of threads running. Yeah, as ever, that's a great point. You've almost always got something else going on in the background. We'll just have to wait and see about real world tests. In the meantime, let's move right along and talk a little bit more about RAID. We talk a ton on this program about ZFS, and rightfully so, but not everyone is lucky enough to be using it right now. And good old-fashioned Linux software RAID is still quite popular. You've been putting in some excellent work over at Ars, benchmarking and explaining those benchmarks all about what RAID looks like these days. 
Thanks, Wes. Yeah, it's something that I've wanted to do literally for a decade plus is, you know, have a system that I can just spend, you know, like a week or so really getting good baselines on, you know, again, just the basics, the basic configurations, you know, what happens when you go from one disc to, you know, a mirror, what happens when you go from one mirror to, you know, two, then three, then four mirrors in RAID 10, what is the true performance impact of scaling a stripe rate array out from three to four to five and, you know, then finally to eight discs. And that's what I finally got the chance to do for ours. Right. Exactly the sort of numbers you probably want to have access to if you're trying to build out a new array. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I have found in discussing, whether it's ZFS or whether it's conventional RAID, when you talk about this stuff to people, you hear the same misconceptions over and over again. You know, people want to talk about whatever kind of test produces the big numbers. They don't want to talk about a test that models their real workflow. They want to say, well, on my array, I managed to get this huge number, and that means my array is awesome. Regardless of if that matches anything they're really ever going to do with that array. So, of course, the biggest numbers you get are always going to be out of sequential workloads, sequential read or sequential write. Yes. And the thing that very few people seem to want to admit is unless you're accessing a tape drive, you don't have a sequential workload. You have a large block random access workload. And sure, there might be some sysadmins yelling out there that they do have these tape systems, and that's a huge workload for their specific use case, but probably a small number compared to all the other things you might actually use a real-life RAID array for. That workload that you have on your LTO7 tape, just because it's that way on the tape doesn't mean it's that way when you're feeding the tape from the actual system. The issue is that you know a, a tape doesn't have a traditional file system at all. You truly do just barf data in one giant stream down onto it. Right. But if you're working with an actual file system, you can't help but be random access. The file's data and its metadata are in different places. What you're doing and what another process is doing, you know, the data for your two different requests that need to be processed in parallel are different places. Now, you absolutely can, you know, aggregate and coalesce a lot of the randomness of your workload into the best kind of configuration that you can get it. But again, at the end of the day, I personally don't think it's wise to assume that any workload is going to be much more sequential than one meg random access. Yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. You know, right at the top of your article, you made a great point that I think we should probably hammer home too before we get too far into this. And that's while everyone will surely be interested in some of the raw numbers that you got out of these things, what really matters is how they relate to different configurations that you've got some sort of sense to compare these things by. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly cool to look at the actual numbers to get, you know, some kind of an idea of, you know, like, well, if I build one of these things, what kind of numbers will I see? But the relationship, that's not going to change much. Even if you have faster disks or you have slower disks, the, the general relationship from one topology to the other, that's really what can help inform you as to what topology should I choose? Do I want RAID 6? Do I want RAID 10? You know, how is this actually going to work for me in real life? Yeah. And what I also found interesting was the focus really on, on performance, because you hear so much about topologies and like, how does this affect the data I'm going to store and the redundancy? And that's certainly important. But if this is a, you know, a live machine responding to requests from, from servers, whatever's going on, you also care about performance. Yeah, absolutely. And again, there's there's a ton of misconceptions about that. Um, really, what got this started, what, what, what truly prompted me to do this was somebody absolutely insisting on RZFS that read IOPS scaled with spindle count in conventional RAID 6. 
it's a complete load of garbage. It absolutely does not. Now, if you have a sequential enough read workload, your throughput may scale according you know to your spindle count on RAID 6. But IOPS, no, never. IOPS do not scale with discount. You know, in ZFS, I would say they scale with VDEV count. Uh, in conventional RAID, I would say they scale with RAID subset count. So if you're using a complex topology like RAID 10 or RAID 50, it's not the total number of disks in your RAID 10. It's the number of RAID 1 mirrors in your RAID 10. Or if you're using RAID 50, the number of RAID 5 stripes in your RAID 50. All right. Well, that's a pretty good reason. Here you are setting out to disprove those ridiculous claims. What was your methodology and what does your test setup look like? Unfortunately, it's it's unobtainium right now due to COVID. You can't buy my chassis anymore, but um, I'm using a pretty inexpensive Rosewill case. It's a 4U rack mount that's got three uh, four bay hot swap cages in it. And I only actually need one of those cages for what I'm doing, you know, with my own backup stuff. I've got pretty large drives in there and I've got more than enough capacity. Hmm. So those first four disks in that one cage are running off of the motherboard SATA. I have also got an LSI host bus adapter in there, and that's powering up the, um, you know, the remaining two cages, eight disks worth. So I've got a free eight bays and a completely unloaded host bus adapter that I can use as a basis for all these tests. And so I just, you know, I've got a full set of eight Seagate Ironwolf 12 terabyte disks, and I just, I've got those in the last eight bays, and I add however many of them I need to check each individual topology. And then for each topo, I check um, block sizes, 4K and 1 meg, and I check random read, and I check random asynchronous write and random sync write. I assume you're using our old friend FIO for this? Absolutely. Oh, and I should also mention there's there's one other dimension to this grid. So we do uh, read, async write, and sync write. We do it in 4K and 1 meg block sizes. We also do it in both single process IO depth equals 1, and we do it in 8 process IO depth equals 8. I'm a little curious. How did you choose both the block sizes and the IO depth? Were these based on some, you know, real world use cases? Yes, the uh, the 4K block size is pretty obvious. Um, that is going to be the smallest block size you'll typically see in uh, you know most modern stuff. Right. You, you have 512 byte drives, but that's mostly legacy these days. Anything of any decent size is typically going to be 4K. So that's your native hardware sector size. It's the most punishing workload you can have. And one meg. It just basically boils down to I don't really trust or believe that I'm frequently enough going to have a workload that's more sequential than that to be worth planning for it. Also, your performance doesn't really change a whole lot between like a random access one meg versus a random access like four to 16. It will still go up some, but basically one meg, you're starting to get pretty close onto the curve with where you would eventually wind up. Oh, that makes sense. Just sort of a representative value, a little bit more up there. Exactly. I mean, so you look at, uh, you know, some some fairly common use cases. If you're storing, let's say, audio files for music, you know, that's typically going to be anywhere from four megs to eight megs per song. So you've got a few blocks for that. If you're storing, uh, you know, full res photos that you took on your smartphone, again, that's going to be somewhere between, you know, six and 20 megs, depending on your phone. So it, it's it's a file size that people are going to see a lot of. Uh, most word processing documents end up for one reason or another, you know, bloating to a few megs in size. They sure do. Ultimately, for the most part, I feel like most systems are doing 
either 4K or one meg. I mean, you absolutely do have some intermediate, you know, 64K or whatever. But um, there's there's kind of some clustering around the really little and the really small because, you know, dot files in like a user's home directory or the equivalents, you know, in user directories in Windows, that's going to be 4K stuff all the freaking way. And then most of your actual data that you're working with is hopefully you're going to be working in one meg increments. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And IO depth one, that makes sense, too. But how'd you choose IO depth eight? Eight disks in the array. That makes sense. I mean, you can certainly go higher than that, but basically by the time you do uh, processes eight and IO depth eight, you're giving the array a chance to really shine. One of the misconceptions that I was setting out to disprove also is the idea that RAID just will always accelerate, you know, any kind of a storage workload. Oh. And in fact, it usually slows down single process workloads. All right. Well, that's enough setup here. What did you find out? So the results were a little bit surprising to me, but not tremendously. I had a pretty good idea what I was going to see. I knew that RAID 10 was going to wildly outperform RAID 6 in most cases, which a lot of people have difficulty believing because, you know, if you got an eight disk RAID 10, well, you're only you're only writing to four disks at a time. And if it was a RAID 6 with eight disks, well, you're writing to six at a time. So that's totally faster, right? And the answer is no, absolutely not. What did surprise me is that RAID 10 not only outperformed RAID 6 in many or most cases, it outperformed it in every single one, bar none. Wow, that's a pretty universal result. For our audience that may or may not be familiar with all the terms around RAID, or perhaps it's just been a while since you've built a RAID array, could you give us a quick rehash about the differences between RAID 10 and RAID 6 and why people might choose one or the other? RAID 6 is an example of striped parity, uh, what some graybeards will call diagonal parity. And uh, the way that it works is you have a stripe across – we'll just talk about a full eight-disc load here. Uh, you've got a stripe across all eight disks, and for any individual write, uh, you'll write data to six out of those eight disks, and you'll write parity to the remaining two. Now, what that does for you is you have a storage efficiency that um, for eight disks wide is equivalent to, uh, you know, 75%. So you have 75% the capacity of your eight disks available to actually write data on. It also means that you're guaranteed able to safely lose any two disks out of that array without losing the array with it. Yeah, that's some good peace of mind. It is. So then, you, you know, your other question was RAID 10. RAID 10 is a stripe, RAID 0, of mirrors, which is RAID 1. So for our eight disk array, what that actually means is you have four pairs of disks. And for each pair of disks, you have the exact same data in the same places on each one of those pairs. So when you do writes, you're striping that across four of these disk pairs. When you do reads, you can actually do a read for any given block out of either of the disks in that pair. So one of the neat things about RAID 10 is that you have double the read IOPS as you do write IOPS. For some workloads, that sounds like a pretty big win. It turns out for all workloads, that's a big win. Again, you know, short of pretending that your array is is actually an LTO7 tape <laughs> and you're just streaming one single tarball to it with absolutely nobody else touching anything, uh, short of that, RAID 10 outperforms RAID 6 for absolutely everything, no matter what, period. And the one thing that we didn't talk about was the, uh, you know, the survivability of RAID 10, which is a little complicated. So with RAID 6, we can survive any two disks failures because we have two parity blocks on every stripe. 
With RAID 10, obviously you can survive any one disk failure because there's another disk with all the same data on it, right? Right. Your odds of surviving the next one uh, get a little bit more complicated. Let's say that you haven't repaired your RAID 10 array yet. So you're down to seven disks out of eight and you're just going to roll an eight-sided die, you know, and uh, you're going to fail one more disk out of your remaining seven. Now, there's only one disk out of those seven that if it fails, you'll lose the whole array with it. So your odds of surviving that are six out of seven. Yeah, these kind of odds continue getting slightly worse with, you know, each successive disk failure. But of course, this is also a pretty naive calculation. You're going to have a slightly increased workload on your remaining disk out of any, uh, you know, degraded pair. Right. So your odds are maybe a little bit worse for losing that particular one next. It's not enough to, you know, write home about. Uh, it's going to get overshadowed by any kind of similarity. Like, let's say that you didn't buy all of your disks at the same time. If your oldest two disks in the array are, you know, both members of the same pair, well, then now your odds look a lot worse for, you know, losing the one disk you can't afford to lose after losing the first one. That's an interesting set of trade-offs here. So on one hand, you've got performance, but you've got a little bit more complicated survivability, as you put it. How do you personally set these things up for your clients? It's actually ZFS for me. <laughs> of course. Yeah, you know, in ZFS terms, RAID 10 would be a pool of mirrors. And that's the way that I go every single time uh, because the logistics is just a lot easier on it. The other advantage that we didn't talk about yet is the rebuild times. Right. I mean, you have to go restore this thing once you've got a replacement disk, right? What a lot of small and hobbyist admins don't quite realize is... Uh, you know, if you're looking at this from somebody who manages any kind of scale of these things, it's not a question of if you'll need to replace a disk. It's when. Absolutely. And your rebuilds take a lot more time on a striped RAID array than they do on a RAID 10 or a pool of mirrors. Yes, you have somewhat lower survivability in that there is, you know, one disk out of your remaining seven that if you lose that one, you'll lose the whole array with it. But the trade-off is that, you know, your rebuild time will be a lot faster the array also performs a lot better while it's degraded for RAID 10 than it does with RAID 6. Hey, and that's pretty important for a lot of workloads. Yeah. And on the ZFS side, there's also the fact that, um, you know, if you're working with mirrors, it makes it really easy to expand later because, well, you can't just reshape a RAID 6 array and say, you know, okay, so this was a six disk, you know, RAID 6 uh, well, not RAID 6, RAID Z2, you know, VDEV. Now I just want to add two disks to it and make it an eight disk wide one. You can't do that in ZFS. Now you can with MD RAID, although your performance while you're expanding that thing is going to be absolutely atrocious for quite a while. Right. I mean, that's all of this rewriting going on. Exactly. But again, you know, shifting back to the ZFS world that I live in, by contrast, if you have a pool of mirrors, you can literally just slap two more mirrors into the pool. And, you know, now you have added another mirror VDEV to your pool and you're done. There's no lengthy resilver time necessary. You know, crap just works. So it makes management a lot easier. Right. And as we continue to see drive size increases, better density, you're going to want to upgrade these things. I don't know about everyone else, but I'm always storing more and more crap. The one thing that I will say to contradict that a little bit is um, if you're in a larger, more professional environment, um, you may not really be in the market to just expand an array in place. Uh, you may be doing longer term planning. And the answer may very well be, you know, every time you need more space, you literally you you don't try to mess with what you got. You're already a point where, um, you know, your server life cycle is towards an end anyway. So you literally build a whole new server with all new disks. Right. And that's a nice way to do it. Yeah. 
So if you're doing things that way, then, you know, that advantage to a pool of mirrors uh, may not be important anymore because you're like, well, if I'm going to do that anyway, then I know I get the chance to start fresh every time I do upgrade my storage because I'm at the end of my, you know, let's say five year, you know, product life cycle. And now it, it gets a lot more reasonable to say, well, you know, I don't really care if I've got less flexibility for expansion on RAID 6 uh, because I'm not going to try to just modify this thing in place. I'm going to do something better a few years down the road. Now, one thing I noticed in your analysis here is I didn't see you testing RAID 5, despite me seeing a lot of people actually deploying that for better or worse out in the wild. Well, you didn't look quite close enough. I actually did test RAID 5, but I only tested it three drives wide. And the reason for that is I do not recommend RAID 5 any wider than that. Only having one single disk of parity, meaning you can only survive one single disk failure no matter what, and being faced with the longer rebuild times involved with a striped RAID array. With the with today's really large disks, it just it makes RAID 5 way too unsafe. If you've got like a six disk wide RAID 5 array, now you have six times the chance of failure. You have one sixth the mean time between failure of a single disk, and you can only afford to lose one of those things. Yeah, that's not a position I want to be left in for very long. Jeez. If we're talking conventional RAID, you know, that's as far as you get. It's just three drives wide. I don't think that's crazy. You know, if you're a, a home admin or, you know, working with a very small business, and you're like, well, I need as much space as I would get out of two disks. I don't think you're nuts for deciding to do a RAID 5. That's fine. But you just need to be aware that any wider than that, you're really running some serious risks of finding out how good your backups actually are. Well, that brings us to another good point. RAID is not a backup. It can certainly be useful for making sure that you, you know, you can operate in a degraded state. As you mentioned, disks do and will fail, but you still need your backups. A lot of people get this wrong. They think, well, I've got RAID, so, you know, if a disk fails, I'm fine. What do I need a backup for? And the answer is there are so many other failure modes <laughs> besides one disk conveniently, cleanly just curling up its toes and dropping off of the array. For example, one of the failure modes that I see most frequently is instead of just conveniently dying and being done, a lot of drives like to start spewing a ton of corrupt data. So they're still online, but, you know, what you save is not what you get back out of them. And RAID doesn't help with that. RAID also doesn't help with disk controller failures. It doesn't help with bad RAM. It doesn't help with, you know, catastrophic human failures. You know, if you delete a terabyte folder off of your server that you didn't mean to, RAID isn't going to bring that back. Before I'm quite done hammering on how RAID is not a backup, there's one other very common failure scenario that I want to address here. Ransomware. Oh, boy. And that's ever growing as a problem, it seems, these days. Yep. You or one of your users clicks the shiny link and now, you know, all the files on your server are encrypted. Well, they're going to be encrypted on your parity disk, too. Yes, absolutely. Hopefully that's scared anyone out there listening to go double check their backups on a regular schedule. If you'd like to see the excellent charts Jim took the time to draw up over at ours, we'll have that linked over in the show notes, techsnap.system slash 428. Let's move things on over to the wild west of the internet. Now, it may not have struck you, but for many folks at the beginning of this month, major sites like Google and Facebook just weren't available. 
This was due to an all-too-common problem we've touched on before, and that's a failure in BGP, or the Border Gateway Protocol. As we've mentioned, there's not enough security going on in the current implementations of BGP, and as such, whether maliciously or just accidentally, sometimes you have problems, often known as route leaks, that lead to routes being assigned to places that just don't make sense. And so when you try to go visit Facebook, well, you're knocking on the wrong door. This proved to be something of a final straw for our friends over at Cloudflare. They've got a new site naming and shaming those ISPs out there who aren't doing their due diligence. I absolutely love that, Wes. Uh, you know, I've, well, I started to say I've fallen afoul of the uh, bad BGP route problem before, but that doesn't really say much because literally everybody on the planet does. No kidding. Now, this can happen maliciously, but uh, more frequently it happens just as simple admin error. And uh, what ends up happening is some small regional ISP, they want to publish a route internally and say, hey, you know, things that go to Facebook should go through this particular data center over here. And unintentionally, they publish that route globally rather than just internally. And all of a sudden, everybody in the planet trying to get to Facebook is going through some regional ISP in Moldova or what have you. As you can guess, that just doesn't work out very well. What I really love about Cloudflare's new site is bgpsafeyet.com is that it has just one simple button dead in the center of it. Test your ISP and you click it and it performs a really quick check to see will your ISP accept routes that it shouldn't. And if the answer is no, not only does it tell you, there's also a single button tweet right there where you can uh, immediately tweet out that your ISP is not safe and uh, you know help hopefully name and shame them into deploying RPKI so that they will no longer accept routes that they shouldn't. Yeah, I think this is very clever. It works because Cloudflare has actually announced a legitimate route, but they made sure the announcement itself is invalid. So if you can get to that website, that means the invalid route was accepted by your ISP. So they're right in the page they can check. Can I get to this page that I shouldn't be able to get to? And if so, you know that your ISP is not doing any filtering. And the filtering we're talking about, at least in the case of Cloudflare's advocacy, is our PKI. What is RPKI, you ask? Well, it stands for Resource Public Key Infrastructure, and it's a cryptographic method of signing records that associate a BGP route announcement with the correct, that's, that's the key part, the correct originating autonomous system. Because in the basic BGP world, how it's designed, and we should probably acknowledge BGP is like a 40-year-old protocol coming at a different time, and honestly, it's kind of amazing it works at all, but in bog-standard BGP, any route can be originated and announced by any random network, independent of its right to announce that route. And that's how you get these leaks that are so problematic. So RPKI is basically an out-of-band method to help BGP manage that. If you want to implement it, your ISP can go check out these signed associations and then say like, oh, this autonomous system over there in Moldova, they're suddenly advertising a bunch of routes that they don't have cryptographic rights to do so and just stop that right there and then before it can impact any of their downstream customers. What's great about isbgpsafeyet.com is honestly, RPKI has been around for a while and it just hasn't been adopted. And if you don't know about it, well, you wouldn't be able to do any pressuring. So now is a great opportunity to start putting some pressure, making some noise, and make sure that your ISB is protecting you in the way they should be. If enough folks complain, hopefully we'll have a better, safer internet. 
Well, Jim, as you know, over the past decade or so, System D has been slowly eating basically everything it can get its hands on, at least in the Linux world. One thing I've just started playing with is System D timers, which, as you might guess, is the System D replacement for our good old friend, Kron. I recently stumbled on a rather provocative blog over on Thomas Stringer's website about why he prefers System D timers to Kron. Now, something tells me, Jim, that you're likely still in the Kron camp. Am I right? Yeah, you're very right. I, I mean, I don't necessarily have anything against System D timers. It's just a case of there's no granularity that I'm missing with Kron that I'm aware of. So it's fine that they're there. I haven't had any real need to learn it as a replacement for Kron. Mostly I'm just annoyed that there's no longer a single place that I can look and find all the scheduled tasks on my system. Now there's at least two. I, I need to go look at all the cron tabs to see if something is scheduled there. And I also have to go discover the system D timers. And I, I'll be honest here. I don't even know where to look. Well, let's talk about that a little more. The first case Thomas makes is basically dependency management and a theme of declarative versus imperative. He really likes that systemd splits things out a little bit. So on the one hand, you've got your service, which is the new systemd abstraction for handling things, replacing the old init system style. You're probably already familiar with writing service files, and these days they ship with just about everything. So you've got your a task you want to run, some script that you're executing as your service file. Now to get that scheduled, you just write another file called the timer. Now the timer unit is basically what you think it does. You can specify when you want that service to run, whether that's a certain amount of time after boot or after you've started that timer or on a calendar event, much like you would do with cron. All right. Now, where do I find all these things when I go sit down in front of an unfamiliar system? That is a good question. There's some good and bad there. You do probably have to look under Etsy systemd, finding all of your units that are kept there. But the upside is you can use the command line interface of systemd and just type list timers. And it'll show you all the timers that are active on your system, when they last executed, and one thing that is nice, when they will next run. So that would be, just to be clear, that's system control list timers. Exactly. You can pry my config files out of my cold, dead hands, Wes. Next in somewhat controversial opinions here is the syntax. Now, Jim, you've been a sysadmin for a long time now, and I imagine you've got your head around cron and find it pretty natural, right? Well, I mean, it's incredibly simple. The biggest issue that I have with uh, configuration of cron is really deleting nine out of the ten comments that come in a default cron file because who really needs them? You just need, you know, the headline that tells you, you know, which column is minutes, hours, you know, days, weeks, day a week, day a month. If you got that, what more do you need? Yeah, it's pretty great. Thomas's viewpoint, and I will sympathize a little bit here, I've definitely worked in some environments with some newbies who found cron not to be super intuitive and used the plethora of websites out there for coming up with, you know, checkboxes, a nice little web form that will convert that into the magic syntax cron expects. It's not magic, it's simple. Yeah, I certainly take your point there. I wouldn't say cron syntax is crying out to be fixed, but I've also experienced users who are less familiar, say, whether that be developers or desktop users, who find it just a little bit confusing at times, especially if they haven't used it for a while. Sometimes you know exactly when you want the cron job to run, but have to go about converting it and entering it into cron's inflexible format before you can get it to run. 
And I think this point is backed up by the plethora of online tools that exist to convert actual timestamps into cron syntax. Now, this can be argued that it's a good thing, right? Cron has existed for a long time, and these tools are readily available. But at the same time, it might show some underlying limitations. Systemd being Systemd, they of course reinvent the wheel here and have a whole bunch of new options, but I think a lot of users might actually find these new formats more intuitive. And to boot, Systemd includes a tool, Systemd Analyze Calendar, that lets you enter in these new timestamp options right on the command line and see exactly how Systemd will parse it and when that timer will run. Eh. Another point Thomas likes is just the integration itself with Systemd. Logging is natural because it's already registered and hooked up with the journal because you're writing a service file. So you don't have to go look around somewhere else under slash var to go find the output of your tasks. Now, a big downside I will immediately mention because I've already ran into this. There's no built-in replacement for Cron's mail-to option. And honestly, that's one of the handiest parts of Cron for me. Although I should note, as we've mentioned before... Email isn't really monitoring, and the flip side of this complaint that, well, mail to is very handy, and it, it really is, I think it can also lead to some bad practices where users abuse mail to, set that up instead of monitoring, and then go about their way without ever setting up a proper solution. And as we both know, that will eventually bite you. At the end of the day, I'm kind of of two minds about this. I certainly don't see any need to get rid of cron, and I won't be uninstalling it on any of my systems. But if I'm setting up a new system and it doesn't have cron, I might just use systemd timers. And while I think you're definitely right about the complexity of having two systems for the same thing, as someone who has maintained boxes where I didn't set them up and didn't always have control over that system configuration, but did need to figure out what was happening on that box to do some troubleshooting, the variety of places cron files can live, whether that be crontab, cron.d, or the particular user's cron files, well, that can be confusing, especially for a newer admin. And much like Systemd brought some introspectability to init scripts, I think the same thing is true of timers. If I'm on an unfamiliar box and I know there are scheduled tasks and I need to figure out what they are and when they last run and when they'll next run, Systemd list timers is exactly the tool I wish I had. There's a lot of people that are downright irrational, in my opinion, with their Systemd hate. It's just... The hate is too vehement and it ignores the good things that Systemd can offer. And it, it just boils down to, you know, old man yells at cloud.jpg. But this one here, you know, I got to be honest, when you said that, uh, oh, the good thing is it's already integrated with Systemd. I just had the Borg tagline running through my head. We are Systemd. You will be integrated. Resistance is futile. It's a tough question. And that makes me wonder what our audience thinks. Will you be holding on to Cron until the end of days? Or have you already switched over everything to Systemd timers? Either way, let us know at techsnap.systems contact. And on that note, that'll bring us to the end of today's episode of TechSnap. If you'd like more, just head on over to techsnap.systems. There, we've got easy ways to subscribe, get in touch, and the show notes for this episode, and the whole back catalog. If you want more Jupiter Broadcasting shows, well, just head to jupiterbroadcasting.com. And if you're not already listening to Self-Hosted and are interested in a show that focuses a little less on your data center and a little more on your home lab, go give that a try right away. If you'd like more Jim, he's writing over at Ars Technica. And Jim, you're on Twitter at JRSSNet. I'm there too, at Wes Payne. And the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. 
As always, thank you so much for joining us. See you in a couple weeks, everybody. 